That means we need God to show us His will from His Word. When Eli, that wicked priest, was told by his protege, Samuel, someone's talking to me. Eli told Samuel to go back, and the next time he heard the voice say, Here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. Let's pray that. God, we are here. We know your voice is here. And we want to be like Samuel. We want to have ears that hear. So here we are. We present ourselves as your servants. We present ourselves as those who are listening. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Another thin book in the New Testament. If you have a new Bible, it's probable that these pages are stuck together still. If you have an old Bible, it's not uncommon for those pages to be stuck together. But you'll have to pull them apart. We're reading the third chapter, verses 1 through 7. This is God's Word. It is eternally true. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that word in Greek is episkopos. We get the word episcopalian from that. If anyone desires to that officer of over that office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how on earth will he care for the church? He must not be a recent convert. The word there is neophyte. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Amen. Please be seated. I'm not looking forward to this sermon, but this sermon is why I picked the book of 1 Timothy to preach. So everything else, in a sense, takes second place to what I have to say today. Unfortunately, I'm not up for it. I'm no match for this text, and I can't say everything that needs to be said. I haven't learned it yet. I haven't experienced it yet, and I don't have enough time to tell you what I do know. But I will try. I'll give it my best shot, and we'll do as much work as we can in the next half hour or so, by God's grace. I thought of how to introduce this sermon, and, and as usual, God met me, inspired me for my opening illustration with a memory from my childhood. And the childhood memory is a 1949 Bugs Bunny cartoon. No, I didn't see it in its original release. <laughs> but the cartoon is one where Marvin the Martian, maybe you've seen it, comes down, he hops out of 
his flying saucer and says, with his ray gun extended, take me to your leader. And Bugs Bunny is nibbling on a carrot as he always is. What if you were Bugs Bunny and you were asked by that alien, or rather commanded, to take him to your leader? Who would you pick? Now, I know the alien has in mind some central figure of the world, say, United Nations Secretary General or maybe the president of the, the lone empire in the world, the United States of America, at least for now. But maybe you would think of someone else. Maybe you'd think of a mayor. Maybe you'd think of the president of your neighborhood association. I'm sure the Martian would be disappointed at that. Maybe you'd think of a husband or a wife. Maybe you'd think of a father or mother, a teacher or coach. And let's just say the ray gun wasn't there, and the request was really for you to tell me who the most important leaders are in your life. I think that gets to the heart of what we're talking about here in terms of leadership, it's a far bigger concept than just an office or a single figure presiding over some grand assembly. The bigger question of leadership gets to why Paul is writing this letter in the first place. If you recall, he's writing it to Timothy in chapter 1 because there are some problems in the church. Imagine that. As I urged you, verse 3, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrines. They need to toe the line here. We've got chaos amongst the believers. Things haven't changed much. Paul sends Timothy to figure things out, to untangle the fishing line, to work out the issues, to resolve the arguments, and to clarify the priorities as he laid them down when he planted the church. And he sends Timothy, in part fulfilling the very prediction that he made in Acts chapter 20, that after his departure, certain men would arise teaching strange doctrines from among your own number, seeking to lead disciples after themselves in taking them away from Jesus. And he repeats this theme of leadership and the importance of leadership throughout the letter. 1 Timothy 1.7 Certain persons in Ephesus desired to be teachers. They weren't qualified. A, their, their doctrine was wrong, and B, their lifestyle was wrong. And their heart was wrong. 1 Timothy 1.17 I charge you, Timothy, as a leader, hold fast to the faith. You have the message. You got the gospel. That needs to be your priority. 1 Timothy 3.15, I'm writing to you so you may know how people should behave in the household of faith, which is the church of God, the pillar and support of the truth. We have a leadership crisis in Ephesus, but it's not just Ephesus. All the problems in history, I think, can be traced to this basic idea of a failure of leadership. Even the first sin was a problem because Adam was asleep at the wheel. 
Things aren't any better today. Leaders are failing more than ever before. It's become so bad that when someone becomes a new leader, what do we wait for? Him or her to fall. We're just waiting. We, we expect it. Headlines show the harm caused, furthermore, when leaders come in temptation of some kind or another, whether it's sex or money, power, drugs. And not only do they fall, but when they fall, they bring lots of people in their fall with them. It's like a domino effect. When one leader falls, all kinds of other people fall with them. And there's this, there's this ripple effect as leaders go down. And so today's message is specifically about gospel leadership. The, the title in your bulletin isn't exactly the one I'm working with today. I'm working with the idea or the question, what is gospel leadership? It does relate to authority, but my title's a little bit different. And my main point is this. This is one to write down if you're a note taker. A church on Jesus' mission has leaders that lead people to Jesus. A church on Jesus' mission has leaders that lead people to Jesus. This series is called Lessons on Leadership for a Missional Church. That's been the overarching theme, and so I'm contending today that if we are to be a church on the mission of Jesus, our leaders must be characterized as those who point people to Jesus. This is a football, right? So my three points this morning are, are this, and, and these are good points for kids to write down because you can actually draw pictures of each of these points if you want. The first point is checkbox. The second point is God in a box. And the third point is out of the box. Did you get that? Checkbox, God in a box, and out of the box. Those are my three points. First of all, checkbox. For all of its debauchery, ancient Rome was a very idealistic and, in this limited sense, a very moral culture, a moral society. And so there were, there were common in that day to have lists of virtues. And so this list we get in, uh, in Timothy of all of these virtues for church leadership is actually pretty normal. In fact, almost all of the virtues listed in this list can be found in pagan literature. So the, these, are, these are virtues that would have been common in Paul's day. The people in Ephesus would have recognized these specifically and would not have been surprised by any of them. So I think it's important to note in the first place that there's nothing particularly remarkable here with these virtues. There's nothing particularly superhuman about them. They're, they're fairly normal virtues. So that it's important also to recognize that all of these virtues that are mentioned in this list, all of these checkboxes, if you will, can be found in other places in the New Testament and can be found in the Old Testament and refer not just to leaders, but what? To people in general. I mean, nowhere in the Bible do you get a pass on being a drunk or being greedy or being um, promiscuous, all three of which show up in this list. Now, the one virtue that's unique to leadership in the church, aptness to teach or having an ability to teach, is that is an exception. But other than that, every one of these other characteristics appear elsewhere. And so as we think about this checklist 
it's important that we not think of someone else or just of people who are aspiring to church leadership or specifically men who are aspiring to the office of overseer. And as we go through this, this list of checkboxes, I see seven categories. There's more than seven virtues, but there are seven sort of broad categories that these virtues fall into. Let's go through them one by one. The first group of, of um, virtues is this idea of reputation. So uh, verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. This, this idea is, is one that, that has a, a good reputation. I think there's an, a little bit of a play on words. If you're going to oversee something, you need to be above the fray by a certain degree, shouldn't you? In order to look out over something, you, you can't be down in the midst, in the mud, in the mix. You've got to have some perspective. So there's a, there's a degree to which those that God installs and appoints as leaders in the church, and specifically men who are called to oversee, need to have a reputation where it, it isn't immediately, uh, they're not immediately chargeable with certain kinds of very public sins. And this idea of reputation also comes up at the end as well, where Paul says, he says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. So we're going to come back to that again. So the first cluster of virtues is related to reputation. The second is related to marriage. He says, the husband of one wife, that's also in verse 2. This needs to be qualified a bit. It doesn't mean that, that you have to be married in order to be an overseer, nor does it mean that in terms of the count of your marriages, that there is only one. But it does mean that the marriage you are in is one to which you are faithful as a man to your wife. You are a one-woman man in that sense. So there, there's a pages and pages of discussion on this verse, but uh, the text really does require us to come to that conclusion. So if you're looking for a verse that prohibits divorce, this isn't it. It certainly relates to divorce. It has implications, but this isn't saying that an overseer can never be divorced, nor is it saying that an overseer has to be married, nor is it saying that an overseer's wife can't have passed away or anything like that. So, But what it is saying is that faithfulness is important. So secret lovers, being flirtatious, having habits, whether it's virtual or pornographic or real, that lead you outside of your marriage to be satisfied for the things that God desires you to be satisfied in marriage, yes, that is being spoken of here. So reputation is the first group of virtues. Marriage is the second. Third is self-control. And we see three virtues along these lines in our text. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Sober-minded doesn't refer to chemical intoxication. We're going to get that in a little bit. But having a clear head, being able to make decisions without being overly emotional or overly passionate, not that you don't have emotions or that you're not passionate, but that you can keep a clear head, that you're, that you're a person of sound judgment. And self-control is, is what's required on the inside to keep a clear head. And uh, respectable or virtuous is the outward result. Again, we have a little bit of the reputation group of virtues there. Someone who's respectable behaves in a way, outwardly, that reflects an inner tranquility, an inner peace. And that inner peace is required to maintain a clear judgment. 
So that relates to these virtues of being self-controlled. The next group of, of virtues applies to ministry. So we see next a couple of virtues that relate to the kind of, the kind of ministry that, that an overseer is to do. Hospitable is one, and able to teach is another. One who is an overseer in the congregation needs to be on the mission of Jesus. Hospitable. We get the word hospital from this word hospitable, which doesn't simply mean having someone from church over for dinner. Although it includes that, a hospital isn't just for people who haven't made lunch plans, is it? A hospital are for people who are sick. So an overseer's home and an overseer's table needs to have something like a hospital quality about it. And this becomes even more clear when we look at the Greek word for hospitality. Listen carefully. Philo xenos. Philo means an affection for or a love for. Xenos means alien. So this is a love of aliens. Very fitting for people who live in a border community. I'm not going to get into the politics of that. But loving aliens, loving strangers, that is, someone you don't know is at home at your table. Overseers have places at the table for people that don't fit at the table because they're aliens. And so, yes, hospitality towards fellow believers is important. Romans 12, verse 13. Show, show hospitality, show generosity to, to fellow believers, Paul says there. But also Hebrews chapter 13 says, some of us, in, in showing hospitality to strangers, I love this, have entertained angels unaware. So sometimes, and actually my mother prays this on a daily basis, she is, in a sense, a female overseer. She has the character and quality of a, of a woman who's a leader in a church. And so her example constantly inspires me, and this is one way. At the beginning of every day, she prays, God, send me a stranger today that I can bless. Do you pray that? Overseers pray that. And they, they, they follow up with it because God loves to answer that prayer. And I think it's important that this idea of entertaining uh, angels and showing hospitality to aliens precedes the virtue, the more common virtue that we expect in an overseer, which is aptness to teach. So we want our overseers to have a life that is holistically grounded in the gospel. They don't just talk about the gospel with expertise. They demonstrate the gospel with expertise. They don't just speak the truth, but they also live lives of love. It's a 360 kind of overseer that we're looking for, not one or the other. Now, any overseer, any man that is appointed to eldership in the church is going to be strong in one or the other of those. They tend to be, it tends to be a fault line of personalities. People tend to either be spenders or savers, right? They either tend to be truth-type people or love-type people. But your overseers are going to have, if not strong gifts in both, they're going to be growing in both, and you're going to be able to see that in their lives. The third group of virtues is not just ministry, number four, but temperance, number five. I see three A's here. See if you can pick those out with me. Not a drunkard, alcohol. Not a lover of money. What's a good A for that? Assets. <laughs> 
and not quarrelsome and not violent. Anger. Or argumentative, that's good. I'm not so concerned about preaching the gospel. I just want to find good alliterations. You know, this is all that's about. So anger, let's see if we got it. Anger, assets, and alcohol. Sobriety, temperance, being tempered. Not too much, not too little. Let me ask, is anger wrong? By no means. Anger is, is an extremely human emotion. Jesus, on a number of occasions, expressed anger. However, my expression of anger typically isn't like Jesus's. It's typically self-centered. It often borders on rage. I sometimes shout. I've said things that I regret. I've done things that I regret. That kind of behavior shouldn't characterize overseers. And by God's grace, it doesn't characterize me as much as it used to. So I'm seeing progress in this area of my life. I don't have any problem with the temperance, if you will, with alcohol. That's never been a struggle for me. But nevertheless, drunkenness is a sin. Now, some, some overseers have determined that, that because of the nature of the use of alcohol in society, that they're going to totally abstain from using alcohol. And that's not a bad practice. But it's not required in Scripture, and it's not required of overseers. The third A, assets, is one that gets the least press, doesn't it? Because after all, if a guy comes into church and he's wealthy, he's a good candidate for elder, isn't he? He's been successful in the world. Surely he can make a good leader in the church. The problem with that is that the kingdom is upside down, and we're going to come to this a little bit more a little bit later. The things that are most valued in the world are least valued in the kingdom. In the world, the first will be first, won't they? What is it in the kingdom? The last will be first. Some men have a real problem with this. And they actually don't like church because it doesn't reward sort of that, you know, that guy, I'm going to win. So I'm agreeing with you if as a man you have trouble with kind of, if you will, the somewhat feminized character of the church where we're sharing and we're, you know, we're, we're talking and we're listening. And, and as guys, it's sort of like we can go a whole day sometimes without saying anything, some of us. Others are more talkative than others, but... As a, as a rule of thumb, they say women have, what, fifteen to 20,000 more words to say in a day than the average man? So we, we want to have a masculine culture in the church. We don't, we don't want a feminine culture in the church, and I've touched on this on an earlier message. However, men, we are called to serve, and the world defines masculinity in a different way than Jesus does. And it truly does require strength to bend the knee, to take the towel and serve. And it requires strength to give away our hard-earned assets, to give away our money, trusting as Dick said and as Steve prayed, that God will reward us for our faith, our counterintuitive faith. So temperance is the fifth category. The sixth category that I see is parenting. And I put two things under this category. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And I also, I also included this idea of neophyte in that. 
He must not be a recent convert or may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. My thought there is that young parents and young believers have a similar personality. We know it all. We do. Just ask one of us. And as soon as kids sort of hit the middle school and high school years, we start losing that knowledge exponentially to the point that when our children turn 18, we know nothing about parenting. And I know because my kids aren't 18 yet, but I can see it from here, and I can see that I have absolutely nothing to say to that kid who turns 18, as sweet as she is. So the neophyte has the same thing. There's a pride, isn't there? When I was a new parent and when I was a new Christian, I knew everybody's answer. And you didn't even have to ask me because I'd make sure you knew that I knew your answer even before you asked me if I knew your answer. So it's important that overseers aren't young in that regard. They can be young in age, but what do, what do our older friends say about being young and being old? You're as old as you think and feel, right? And if you're a person in his or her golden years, you know that there are some of your friends that are old and that some of us are not old, even if in age we have turned a lot of pages on the calendar. And it's the same thing is true of young men in oversight, that you can be a young man and yet be mature in the gospel and be an effective overseer in this regard. That was six. And the last one is just to simply reiterate the importance of reputation Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well, that took longer than I had wanted, but I did want to at least demonstrate for you that I'm able to go through line by line of this text and explain the significance of each of these terms. That was my first point. And what was the point? Checkbox. Okay? So when we're looking for an overseer, we pull out the job description and we start checking off the boxes, right? My second point is God in a box. This list is deceptively simple. It'd be easy to blow it off and say, eh, I, I can do this stuff. On the other hand, the list is deceptively profound. It would also be easy to say, you know what, no one can do all that. And who would want to anyway? So I'm just going to quit trying. I'm not even going to go to church. And maybe you're, one of, maybe you're a person like that. So there's the legalist approach, which says, I can do that. I've got it all taken care of. And then there's the, the, uh, the libertine approach, which says, forget it. Nobody can do that. Why bother trying? Both of these approaches are deadly because, what's my point? They put God in a box. The libertine puts God in a box because he says that God is not able to do a work in my life to make me a man who is able to oversee a group of believers. It limits God, doesn't it? And the legalist puts God in a box too. It says, see, here's my little pet. Here's my God. It's a little idol that I keep on my mantle and I keep polishing it so everyone can see that it's nice and tidy. God is limited in a very narrow sense as I've defined him in these very specific categories. And once I've checked these all off, I have pleased my God. Both gods are idols. Both gods we've manufactured of our own making. They come from our minds 
and they come from our hearts. There's a parable I'd like to tell you. A pastor had two elder candidates. One day, one of the elder candidates said to the pastor, Pastor, I'm tired of this elder training course. Give me my money back for all the books that I bought, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to quit going to church and have some fun on Sundays for once. And the pastor, in love, gave all the money for these books back that he had purchased for, the, for this particular elder candidate, and that particular elder candidate proceeded to spend all of that money on race car magazines or NFL football channel subscriptions. And for the next year, he did nothing but watch football and sleep in on Sunday mornings. Until one day, this elder candidate woke up and he felt lost spiritually. And he said, why am I sitting here in my bed lost spiritually when there's an entire family of believers waiting to have, give me a sense of belonging and a sense of acceptance that I've been looking for? I'm going to go back to church. And so when this elder candidate comes back to church, the pastor sees him pulling in the parking lot, and in the middle of the sermon, he runs out into the parking lot and greets him at his car, and he says, Bill, Bob, whatever his name is, I'm so glad to see you again. Meanwhile, the other elder candidate, who didn't cash in his books, who stayed for the whole year of training, who did all the, the workbook exercises, who filled out all the forms, who answered all the questions, who, who passed the test with an A+, the elder examination test that he took, saw the pastor running out and greeting that, that elder candidate in the parking lot, and he was angry. He said, why are you doing that? What am I, chopped liver? I've been here for a, a whole year doing all of this work and, and doing everything that you asked, and you never threw a party for me. And the pastor looking with mercy at this older elder candidate, says, older elder candidate, you've been with me the whole time. All of my books are yours. And at any time, you can come over to my house. But this younger elder candidate who was lost has now been found. How'd I do? <laughs> you see, the younger elder candidate suffers a problem of putting God in a box, doesn't he? He suffers the problem of thinking that, that God cannot help him, that God can't work through such simple things as preaching, as sacraments, as fellowship, as prayer. And so he leaves in unbelief because God is in a box. The older elder candidate has domesticated God and he has put God in a box as well. He said that my God is defined by these things that I do, these things that I say, these activities, these beliefs that I hold. That is my God. Here is my God. And that candidate has also put God in a box. But Jesus calls us to find men who lead us outside of the box. That's my third point. He leads us outside of the box. An elder leads us outside of the box of our idolatry. He leads us outside of the box of our superstition. He leads us outside of the box of our legalism. He leads us outside of the box of our licentious behavior, the, our libertinism, our, our taking great um, liberties with the commands of God. He leads us away from ourselves, in fact, altogether, and leads us to Christ. My main point this morning is 
The overseers that we need are men who will lead us to the mission keeper, Jesus. The man who leads us to Christ is the one who we want presiding in a sense, one who we want raised up in the midst of the assembly to watch out over the assembly, to look out for the wolves, the legalists and the libertines that will cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus, either by our liberties or by self-imposed or God-imposed but secondary rules and regulations. He leads us out of the box of idolatry to the cross. You know, Paul used to be a box-checker elder. Paul used to be someone who had checked off all the boxes. And I have time to read this passage. It's one of my favorites in Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Not one to mince words, is he? Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh or in the checkboxes. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Seven categories. Seven checkboxes that Paul had meticulously marked off of the list as, as having accomplished. And yet he says this about all his obedience, all his righteousness, all of his goodness. He says, All things I count loss and rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the overseer that we need. That's the bishop that we need. That's the presbyter that we need. That's the elder that we need. That's the leader that we need, who in his confession says, nothing matters to me except Jesus. Nothing. We need leaders who themselves have been let out of the law, themselves who have been let out of bondage, themselves who have been led out of slavery into the green pastures of God's grace, who have been led out of self-righteous pride and religious indifference and led to the cross of Christ where he died to pay for my sins that I could never pay for and to the empty tomb where he rose again from the dead with a power over death that I myself could never have. We need elders who cry, Abba, Father, because the spirit of adoption cries out in their hearts. We need a missional church that is out of the box when it comes to leadership. Leadership that recognizes that the heart of the faith is the faith of the heart. A church that believes that he became a curse for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, not on our own, not off in the wilderness, and not on our own, not in the church keeping rules. Real leadership is leadership that helps believers and non-believers alike to see the true value of Jesus in the world and in their lives. I remember a professor in seminary who replied to one of my requests to upgrade my grade from a B-plus to an A-minus because he had missed a certain question that I believe I had answered correctly. And I was right. 
And he told me, having looked at the paper, in his wisdom, and I will never forget this till the day that I die, Phil, it's been my experience that men preparing for the pastoral ministry are not well served by pursuing A's at any cost. Give me a C, please, give me a C. Fail me, give me an F, forget a B. In the same way, pastors in the church, and by pastors I mean elders and ministers of the word, pastors, the church is not well served by men who don't understand that suffering, grace, and forgiveness are all of one piece with true godly leadership. It's not intuitive. It's not straightforward logic. This is backwards thinking. As I mentioned earlier, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. I love Flannery O'Connor's writing because of its vivid portrayal of this upside-down nature of God's grace. And reading one of her stories in in preparation for this morning's message, I read this about one man's discovery of mercy. Quote, Mr. Head had never known before what mercy felt like because he had been too good to deserve any. But now he knew. Too good to deserve mercy. So goes most Christians' understanding of what it means to be an elder in the church. You could put it in another way. The healthy don't need a doctor. Only the sick. Paul did not say that this was a trustworthy saying. Jesus came into the world to save good people, and I'm one of those good people. Paul said that the trustworthy saying, which means the foundation stone, the cornerstone that we build our lives on, and that we build the leadership of the church on, because as goes the leadership of the church, so goes the church. The cornerstone of our faith is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's it. Experts in mercy, because they're not good. The deeper the sin, the greater the grace. We need men who have deep wells of God's grace. We need men who will move amongst the people of God with blessing and grace. Now I know, I know you know men who do not do that. I know you've been around a man who does not move amongst you with blessings and grace. I know that's true. Whether it's this church or another church, whether it's your home or your work, our lives are filled with such men. I am such a man in my bad estate. But by God's grace, we are called to look for, to train, to raise up and appoint such men that know God's grace and live it out on a day-by-day basis. This is why Paul says, and this is my concluding word, It is a noble task. It is a noble task to aspire to the office of overseer. I believe that men ought to aspire to the office of overseer. I believe that our faith should command us, should compel us to not believe what we've seen, but believe what we don't see. That Jesus is the elder in the church, and that the elder of the church is making men, elders in the church, like himself, under shepherds who dispense God's grace as it's needed. We aspire to the office of elder not because it's a Navy SEAL position. 
It's that elite death squad, sort of the, you know, you got to have a graduate degree in theology or the equivalent thereof. No, we aspire to the office of elder because we have a graduate degree in grace. We know our sin, and we've seen our Savior, and we will not let anything get in the way of my vision of the Savior or of yours. Give me that overseer over any theologian any day. Leaders by nature are rough-hewn. Think of David. That guy was rough. Think of Moses. That guy was, he was insane. (laughs) Think of Jeremiah. Think of Paul. Paul doesn't fit this list, my friends. Paul himself. So we need to look for something else. We can't diss the list, but we have to see it in its context. The mission of God in the world is moving forward. Are we going to be a part of it? Are we going to have men leading us into that mission? Take me to your leader. Take me to Jesus. And those men who are being shaped by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this challenge. We thank you for this call. We thank you that the gospel still saves. We thank you that it is still potent and that rough-hewn men like Peter and John, son of thunder, and Matthew, the tax collector, rough-hewn men, men, are still being transformed by God's grace and are being changed from abusers and scaredy-cats into men of God's mission in God's world. We do pray that you would be working in men's heart in this church. Lord, we know that, that behind every good man is an even better woman, but in your inestimable mystery and profound depth, you have called men to oversee in your church. And Lord, we desire the men of your heart, men of faith. Would you give that to us? Don't give us, Lord, the leaders we deserve. Give us the leaders of your blessing, of your mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.